Well, look, it's a great opportunity, you know, for a leader to show the right kind of behavior. Because at the end of the day, the only thing we can control is our behavior. And it's about showing the right behavior. So for example, you know, one of the hard, one of the hardest things, you know, junior leaders, myself included, find difficult to say is, I don't know. And so if you're doing a large gathering of people in you know, a complex organization, there's no possible way anyone can know the answer to every question. And so at some point, I... Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Mark Dorman, CEO of S3, a publicly traded staffing agency in the UK. Do you refer to yourselves as a staffing agency, or how do, how do you? what category do you consider yourself? So look, I, we are a staffing specialist, and so we, you know, we, we think of ourselves as providing talent. Um, because you know, it's people in life sciences, technology, and engineering, and you know we tend to play seasoned professionals. We're not placing everyone a- a- along there, so these would be you know people that would either be running a program or a project for a company or leading a sizable part of a specialist function. And so we see it very much as a specialist staffing within there. And so you know, we talked about in the first episode, you guys are doing over you know one point three billion pounds a year in in revenue, three thousand employees across sixteen different countries. Wh- which countries are your biggest countries? So Germany, U.S., uh, U.K., and uh, Netherlands are the the four biggest countries that we operate. Uh, four biggest centers for us in those in those markets. And then, what are some of the more far flung places that you are? So we have business in Japan and um, Singapore. Um, uh, we've got quite a heavy weighting in continental Europe. So Belgium, France, Luxembourg. So we're, we're well dis- well sp- um, spread over, over the world as a global company. Sure. You know, we talked a little bit about the differences when you start running larger and larger organizations. And you talked about the complexity when you add so many folks. I'd be interested, you know, so our, our, you know, listeners of the show know about the real estate investment trust. We've been building this Greystoke Investments and we are looking at going after a different marketplace. Instead of going head to head with Blackstone for, you know, trying to get pension fund money, we're building a, a force of licensed reps all across the U.S. to go meet one on one with wealthy entre- entrepreneurs, right? So if we do this well, like let's say we can get, you know, 40 reps in every state, that's like 2,000, that'd be like 2,000 representatives across the country here in the next few years, right? What kind of challenges do you think we should anticipate w- with a workforce of that size? So retention, right? And, and so why would, why would they stay with you? So you might get the excitement on the acqu- acquisition of them, but once they get the story and they get their taste, or they, you know, it's why, why are they going to stay with you? What's going to excite them, you know, not just this week, but next week, the week after that, and they want to develop and they want to be as committed and as passionate as you are about the business. How do they see their part in that success and how do they feel engaged um, as a, you know, part of a larger whole than them just individually? That I mean, because at the core, when you get to, you know, a thousand people, it's, it's, it's their, they, sh- they should feel part of something, uh, you know, because then it becomes really hard to, to manage a thousand individuals or two thousand individuals. It's more how do they feel part of something more, a community, 
have some sense of team moving forward. What, what kind of rookie mistakes do you see organizations make there when they're first getting to that size? Um, it, it, well, uh, I, I'm not sure it's a, a rookie mistake, but it's really valuing the people because at the, at, at the end of the day, you know, valuing your people, uh, trusting your people, developing your people really is what's going to differentiate you from anyone else in the marketplace. So you might have the best ideas in the world, but if you're going to scale those ideas and engage with, you know, multiple clients or multiple customers, you're going to need people to come and help you and making sure that those people are on that journey and feel part of that journey and empowered and doing good work. That's, that's the key thing. And anyone that doesn't value that, those are, those are the people that, yes, you can scale fast because it might sound exciting to begin with, but maintaining that really is about people. When you think about some of the successes that you've either had or that you've observed with, with folks really having, you know, this thousand plus, 2000 plus size workforce and, and really having that feeling of engagement, what are some of the best practices that maybe aren't as obvious to everyone? So I'm, I'm purpose-led. As I spent a bit of time with all education and education, which is easy to become uh, purpose-led. It's an important part of us uh, and society. And at Edge 3, we have a pretty strong sense of purpose that bringing skilled people together to build the future sounds like a pretty good thing to do. Um, and if I think of you know, what gets people really engaged within businesses, it's them feeling part of a bigger whole. So they're not, and we're not just turning up for the paycheck. Right. We're, we're here to do something that's meaningful, not just, you know, profit and loss, but actually for society more broadly. Actually, this is an important thing for us to do. And the people that feel they're part of that team, you know, they tend to be more engaged um, generally. That's certainly my experience. There's a lot of research out there that would indicate that companies that are purpose driven tend to have more engaged employees and since they're the they're the factor that are going to make you successful or not in terms of their level of engagement that's a pretty important important thing and on a purely practical basis i have to say that clarity of communication particularly when your strategy or your operational plans people that are aligned to a north star a purpose that is core to your business much easier to engage with them and communicate you know what's what's happening than if it's something that's more amorphous and not you know, crystallized or clear for them. And it's also important for your stakeholder groups as well. So if you're external investors or someone else, much easier to describe who you are as a business and, you know, how you're going to be successful if you've got that core sense of purpose and people really get, aha, I understand why you exist. So in my experience, I've been able to do a lot of work. We, we also own a consulting firm. And so we've had large military clients, large government clients, publicly traded companies here in the US and down to small entrepreneurial companies. And I observe a lot of folks at headquarters who would give themselves the check mark of, oh, we're doing that. We've got engaged people. Our people believe in the cause. And then when you get out to when you get out to some of their locations a little farther away from headquarters, the water the water didn't get to the end of the row, you know? So in your mind, those organizations that get that feeling even out to the far fingers of the organization, what are they doing different than, you know, maybe the folks who, the senior leaders who are giving themselves a pat on the back prematurely about, you know, our whole organization believes in this message. And, you know, they spend a lot of time kind of self-congratulating versus those folks that really do get that feeling all the way to the end of the organization? Well, there's a couple of, couple of things. So one is openness and transparency. And transparency comes with, uh, you know, if you measure it, it will get managed. So for example, at S3, we have an employee NPS score. 
that we measure on a regular basis. So we How often do you it. measure that? Um, so we try and do it once a quarter, but if not, then we'll do it once every six months. It's become a little a little challenging pulling stuff together in working remotely, but but we work hard to to do it as often as we can. Where the score variance is actually going to be meaningful enough for, for us to get insights to be able to do that. That me- holding yourself accountable on the measurement is is one aspect th- that is important. Hand in hand with that is transparency and openness. So creating forums, for example, for people to feel comfortable to share not just the raw score, but some of the insights underneath that. And so, you know, what's interesting about our current mode of operating, where we've got some people in Germany, we've got about 50% of our people in the office, 50% remote. In the US, all of our offices are closed. So we've got a lot of people, you know, working remotely. One of the you know, helpful things with that is we've been using, you know, technology um, and video technology. So I've been holding, you know, bi-weekly, you know, open town halls for people that they can come and ask the CEO any question they want. And it took a little while, it took a little while to get a lot of the questions coming. But once you persevere with it, you know, people will really engage. And, you know, you know, we, I think we started about 30 minutes, 45 minutes. These sessions are pretty packed on a regular, a regular basis of people actually feeling comfortable that they can ask a question. And so that leadership from the top, you know, then there's an expectation, well, if the CEO is going to sit on a call for 45 minutes and take questions from anyone about any topic, and it's going to be measured in my ENPS score, me as a first-line supervisor, which is the which is largely the group of people you want to make sure get the get the water, <laughs> the message that you were talking about there's you know downward and upward pressure in terms of expectation of you know this is what good looks like and this is the kind of behavior that that we should expect so you get you get a better sense of what's going on by doing it it's certainly not perfect right you know there's certainly a sense of you know that's that's my boss so you know I'll I'll nod along at some of those parts but certainly you're giving the forum to you know get the worst of the the, the worst of you know some of that self congratulating stuff out in the organization, but it starts at the top. You've got to be visible as a leader. You've got to be comfortable speaking to everyone at the at any level and take any question because you have a responsibility to those people. You know, so uh, I love hearing that you do that. The first time I saw this, we had uh, Malene Dastrup from Google on the show, and then she ended up inviting me out. So I went out to California and did the Google tour and all this stuff. And she showed me, she's like, oh, this is the room for the Thursday events. And I was like, what's the Thursday events? She's like, Google has the same thing you're talking about. And like, they're like pretty intense because there's a lot of people with some pretty strong opinions. And so they have like this big giant room where the, where the people can gather who in person who are in California and then the rest of people were, can remote in. But what's interesting about it is you think about how much complaining happens in large organizations, whether it's government or for-profit or whatever. And with that level of connection, it kind of removes some of that justification for complaining. It's like, well, how come you didn't talk about it then? How come you didn't, how come you didn't bring it up? You know what I mean? And that, that chance of like an invitation to like take personal responsibility of like, well, hey, maybe I can't fix this, but I can at least bring it up because somebody from the top has, has given them that platform. It's, it's interesting how that could be scary for a lot of leaders to feel like, well, I don't want to get embarrassed in front of all the staff. What if they, you know, what if, what if, what if, right? Well, look, it's a great opportunity, you know, for a leader to show the right kind of behavior. Because at the end of the day, the only thing we can control is our behavior. And it's about showing the right behavior. So, for example, 
you know, one of the hard, one of the hardest things, you know, junior leaders, myself included, find difficult to say is, I don't know. And so if you're doing a large gathering of people in you know, a complex organization, there's no possible way anyone can know the answer to every question. And so at some point, in fact, probably every week or every every session I have, there's at least one or two questions where I have to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but I can go and find the person that does and get back to you and then follow through on that on that question. And on, on the complaining part, like that's never going to go away, but it, you've created a forum where at least there's a, a safety valve that, that complaining doesn't turn into genuine frustration about specific topics that are that are clearly important to the organization. But I think it's just the openness and you know the opportunity to to share good behavior is is really important. Yeah. Well and for anybody not familiar with NPS or ENPS, you know, the who want to look into it, the net promoter score system uh, thought up by the guys over at Bain. My favorite book is their The Ultimate Question 2.0. Do you have any other resources you like better than that one, Mark? Or no, I think that's that's a good one. Or, or you know, if you if you look at some of the original Bain research on NPS, is actually it's actually it's actually pretty good um, in terms of it being it being a predictor of direction of travel on the topics that come up. Well, I I actually love how simple it is because again, you know, we've our the consulting firm we own. We'll get like we'll get copies of these reports from either large public companies or like Department of Defense, right? And the the quite there's like 84 questions, and you can get the sense that by the end of it, people are just kind of like mailing in and clicking the button. They're not as engaged, right? Where that net promoter score of like, I don't know what your guys' version is, but I've heard other people's employee net promoter score is like, how likely are you to recommend to a friend or family member to work here? Zero to ten, and why did you pick that number? And it's like it short enough and concise enough that you actually get like higher quality answers. Is that do you see it? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think the the beauty is in the simplicity in terms of what it is, and the, you know the mechanism. You know, for those people that don't know how it works, you've got detractors and promoters, and it's the net of the two. You don't get the people in the middle, so it's it's it, it, the sensitivity is pretty high on on a sentiment one way one way or the other, and it's really hard to get your promoters to be um, high. And so, it, its simplicity is 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 very helpful. And, you know, so we use it for employees. It's also phenomenal for customers as well, where, you know, the, you know, the, other, the other component that keeps you on is just having that same level of transparency and dialogue with your customers, because they'll certainly tell you if, if something's working or something isn't, isn't working. Yeah. And, you know, of the two constituencies you should be listening to, one is, you know, the team that's helping you do stuff because they're closer to the customers and the work than, than you are as the leader and your customers directly. And that, you know, listen to those two stakeholder groups more than just about anything else. And you'll soon understand what's working and not working. Well, I remember when I first was reading the books that like, I was surprised. They're like, okay, your nines and tens, those are your promoters. Sevens and eights don't count. I'm like, they don't count? What? You know, that sounds like a pretty good number to me. And then six and below are detractors. I'm like a six over halfway. And that's a detractor. (laughs) It's like... You know, it's interesting, like, and I know that people calibrate a little bit for their own organizations, but it's, you know, it's, I feel like that's so helpful instead of like patting myself on the back of like, oh, I don't know, seven and a half doesn't sound so bad, (laughs) you know, (laughs) seven and a half out of 10. And then you're like, well, when you subtract the six and below, you know, anyway. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it does keep you honest in terms of where it is, which is, which is always good of getting rid of the uh, ivory tower dynamic you were talking about. 
Yeah. I think my next question I'm super curious about is for folks who haven't worked across borders, you know, like for, for us at Greystoke, we hope to do this in the US and then, you know, go home to Canada and go get all the entrepreneurs there and then come to the UK and, and Europe and, you know, be meeting with entrepreneurs all over the place. And we're going to have to comply with securities regulations when we do that. And, you know, regional attitudes will change and how we recruit will probably be different in different regions, stuff like that. What kind of advice would you have for folks who haven't expanded international but want to or just getting started into it? We could spend a couple of hours just, just on this topic alone. I think the, 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 the key is to really try and understand the cultural dynamics and norms of, of the country that you're going to expand into and why you're going to expand into there. And, and so it may be that 80, you know, like 80, 20 rule, that 80% of what you do in one country fits in the other one. And there's a 20% variance because of local laws, cultures, whatever, whatever it might be. Don't underestimate that 20% and the impact it can have on success or failure, because at the end of the day, you're, you're dealing with humans, you know, regardless of what product, what, 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 you, what, what market you're in. And that is really important to understand, both in terms of the customer dynamic, the structure of the market, and how people actually operate within the, the system that you're in. They, they will, you know, operate very differently. And then in large, very large countries, if you think of the US, for example, there's pretty wide regional variances. So many, so many companies that are not US-based that want to go to the US try and see it as a singular market and singularly fail largely because they underestimate the complexity of large countries and the regional variances between the two. You know, so, you know, New York is not like Arkansas. And so if you want to be in those markets, you got to be, you better understand, you know, what, you know, where do your customers cluster at? You know, what's the cultural norm within there? What's the normal business practice? Um, and, and get to, to really understand it. Yeah. So for you with, you know, from Germany to Japan, what what are some of those what are those some of those differences look like at S3? Well, so if you think of our product, for example, which is people, so placing people, um, so you've got some, you know, in, interesting dynamics in, you know, culturally. So in continental Europe, for example, or if, you know, if if you're a senior technology leader, um, but if the job or the your your program, your project, your place of work is more than 45 minutes travel time from your home, you probably wouldn't want to do that, which as, you know, in the UK or in North America, that's a pretty odd circumstance because, well, I, I commute and I commute long distances and if the work's good and the job's right, well, do that. So that's just one tiny thing where everything else is exactly the same. But when you speak to somebody, the cultural norm would be, actually, I'm not going to spend more than 30 minutes, 45 minutes from, from my house traveling to and from work, which seem odd to you know somebody in, in a different country. Yeah. What's another one? Um, well, you know, then, it, then it's to do with your end customers, right? So our shape of business is very different. So you've got the Netherlands and Germany, countries that have a border. In, in Germany, you know, the, the economy is, is dominated by Mittelstand, so small, medium-sized enterprises, sometimes, you know, privately owned, many times family owned, These are, but they're still decent-sized businesses of, you know, four, five, 6,000 employees. And that's, and they have a certain view of the world in terms of long-term investment, you know, thinking about talent, their business, 
you know, the cultural dynamic and passing on to my family or doing the right thing for society generally. And so they operate in a very, a very specific way. Right over the border, you've got the Netherlands, which is dominated by a lot of global public companies that operate in a very different way. Quarterly so earnings. <laughs> it, so it's, it's driven by quarterly earnings, global supply chain, you know, the, a trade war, whilst the industries, for example, might be impacted in Germany, their approach to it would be very different than in, in the Netherlands because the company's ownership is very different and the size and scale of the enterprise is very different. So the makeup of the country, the cultural dynamics of the country, you've got to really understand where your customers are and where they're coming from. I love it. Well, you get interviewed on the BBC and other places. What what kind of questions are they not asking that you wish they would ask? Or what's something you're passionate about you don't get to talk to as much about? So well, you've probably heard about people and talent. And so, you know, the, the importance of, you know, the, the talent that we have is we're all entering into this new economy. Uh, and how do we make sure that we maintain and develop, you know, the right kind of talent? I and mean, we have a talent shortage. It doesn't probably feel like it if you look at the economic conditions, but it's largely around, you know, making sure STEM um, skills and training and retraining um, is accessible to, you know, different parts of society and making sure that we've got the right kind of structures in place to enable people to, you know, engage in the economy, do really good and important work, particularly as we move forward. Now at S3, you know, we, we do our, our part uh, in terms of the, the core work that we do. We also have an S3 foundation, which is largely reaching out to underserved communities as well to help them with uh, STEM training and STEM education to, to development. But I think that's an important topic that's going to become more and more important as, as we move forward as to how do we engage with different types of communities and enable them with different types of training and retraining to get the right kind of STEM talent and the right roles that are essentially going to impact, you know, companies moving forward that then it, then in turn impact society more broadly. I think about this, you know, I've got four kids age 16 to nine and in trying to prepare them for their futures and, and careers or businesses, thinking about like, I don't know, so many of the failings that I felt like my, my schooling didn't set me up for what ended up working out for me, you know? And when you think about, you talked about the fourth industrial revolution. For people who that's maybe more of a buzzword and they don't know as much about it, can you can you talk a little bit about that and how you know how preparing the next generation can be helpful to that? Yeah. So if you if you think of it, you know, we, we talk about it, fourth industrial revolution, you know, moving towards a not a knowledge based economy. Largely, it's economy where you know intellectual property and the monetization of that, so making money out of ideas largely expressed through software. So if you think of the internet of things, you know, um, digitization of everything, you know, soft, software, um, data science, artificial intelligence, they're all converging to a point where, you know, just about everything is going to be controlled by software. It doesn't matter what industry you're going to be going to be in. And so really understanding how those component parts work is is important. So if you imagine in the, I think in the in the US, for I think there's about a million people employed in the, or a million truckers, right, employed in the US doing logistics. And if you think of autonomous vehicles, for example, the first place is not going to be a taxi in a very complicated city that's going to be fully autonomous, right? It's probably going to be a truck that goes on the same route 
250 miles back and forward, right? That's, that's, it's not a difficult, as difficult a problem to solve, but you've got a million truckers that you're going to have to, you know, essentially retrain when, when those trucks become autonomous and those primarily, you know, small, medium sized businesses in the U S that run all those logistic companies, because they tend to be regional and um, they're going to move from being, you know, focused on logistics and where the truck is to managing software that manages those trucks. So that's a whole other group of people that will need to be, you know, retrained. And so you've got this, you know, shift that's beginning to happen in multi, you can see it over multiple industries um, where there's groups of people are going to have to engage with technology that perhaps didn't think they had to within a very short period of time that we're going to have to train to to develop moving moving forward. And so I think there's a there's a, a real opportunity and challenge about how do you create you know communities of people to be able to do that. So you know one of the approaches and where we tend to focus is on candidate communities. So we place at the top end. So how do you take you know a, a, some of the best people within a given um, area of expertise? and have them help other people within those that candidate community. So if you're a Salesforce administrator, so salesforce.com software program, you don't have to have a you know computer science degree from Georgia Tech or MIT to, to be able to do that. You do need certification and you do need help in terms of developing your career. How can we create communities to get to different types of um, underserved communities to be able to to develop their career through mentorship and, and other types of, of training and development, knowing that in some period of time, the software platform is likely to shift over time that I'm going to have to relearn and retrain all of the time moving forward. I think that's part part of the shift. You know, one, one interesting you know, example, if I, if I think of um, HVAC engineers, so kind of, you know, uh, very, very specific skill set, Historically, has been a mechanical engineering skill. All HVAC systems now are run by software. Most of the technical schools in Germany that certify HVAC people don't teach the software part. And so there's a group of self, you know, so we, we've got to, you know, work together as a society to try and understand how do you um, actually learn and understand software as part of a technical skill, regardless of what industry, industry you're in. Yeah. Well, this has been great. I know we're we're kind of winding down here. Maybe maybe for a final question, I, I'd be interested. You know, you're already a large company, an international company, but there's still the challenge of being top of mind. You guys want to be, you know, you guys want to be the number one firm thought of when people are looking for STEM talent. Any thoughts on strategy of how how you stand out, how you how you are top of mind, how you get that kind of uh, I don't know, own that part of the customer mind. So for us, it's really about, you know, it's, it's about, you know, where, where do we add the most amount of value? And it's about, you know, you've got supply constrained markets. So do we have, you know, the best candidates within a specific niche that are going to have a big impact to companies that are looking for that kind of talent? So that's, you know, that's what we do. And so then the question is, well, how are we having the right conversations with the right senior leaders in industry to understand, well, what kind, what kind of problems do you have? And how, what are we seeing develop in the marketplace? So we spend a lot of time with our insights, under, understanding our customers and their needs. Uh, and so through this pandemic, we spent a lot of time with them and seeing, you know, what has changed? And three big themes came out from them. So one was about, no surprise, 
you know, managing the flexible workforce of the future. So what, what does that look like, given that we're all working in this, in this way? And that's everything from, you know, how do I just manage a remote workforce? So for many of us who've worked remotely in some parts of their career, it seems that kind of, it should be relatively straightforward. For many companies, this is brand new. And so what skills, capabilities do they need to do to, to understand how to do that? And so we've you know, thought about how, how, how to engage with them and help them with that. The next theme was that, you know, reimagining the global supply chain. So building in resilience. So moving from this notion of just in time to just in case. So they can actually, when things happen, how do I actually, you know, get control of my global supply chain? Is my distribution center, is my manufacturing center in the right place? Can I track it all? Do I understand where everything is? So there's a focus on doing that. And then lastly, you know, this other theme around the acceleration of digitization and automation, which is everything from advanced robotics in manufacturing to data science to how do I engage with my customers through, you know, primarily e-channels now, even B2B. It's not just, this is not just a retail consumer activity. This is all customers, wherever my end customer is. So we, we develop, you know, um, some communications and thought leadership on that and then break it down into what does that mean for each of the sectors and customers that we talk about. So how do we build those conversations and then connect them to the talent that we have? And so I, maybe my final question there is, once you get those insights produced, what's what's kind of, I mean, I know you guys have got a great LinkedIn page. Everybody should go check out S3 on LinkedIn. But what is kind of your primary method for having the people who aren't your customers find out about those insights? Are you buying LinkedIn ads? Are you trying to get on mainstream media? What's your distribution look like? Well, so all of the above. So not dissimilar to many companies. It's about, you know, you know digital engagement, you know, social for us, you know, so LinkedIn is, a, you know, is a social mechanism. We have a, a, a series of uh, panels and thought leadership programs. So our, what we call our STEM series about what's happening in STEM related to those things. And we have some great panelists and, on, an, on a number of comics. And do you topics. record those series or are they webcasts or what do those series look like? So they're, they're, they're recorded. So largely they've been, you know, Zoom or Teams or some platform that we've recorded them on. But you can go to, you know, s3.com and you'll be able to see hashtag STEM series. And there's a sequence of them. We've got some great panelists talking about, you know, innovation, uh, leading with purpose, you know, workforce of the future and diversity and inclusion, a whole range of topics about, you know, things, things that are coming up right now. And so creating some great content and then promoting it through digital media, social, and then, of course, Jess, coming on great podcasts <laughs> like this and speaking, speaking to you. That's great. <laughs> well, well, listen, I, I really enjoyed your insight. I think that we don't get nearly as many guests from the UK as I'd like to have. So I'd love some good suggestions of, of people you know we should have on the show. But appreciate you coming on. This was fun. Okay. Well, great. Well, thanks for inviting me. It was uh, great to be here. Enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, great.